We appreciate the presence of everyone tonight. Uh, it's good for us to be here at the end of the Lord's Day. We start the Lord's Day worshiping together and uh, praying together and uh, focusing on our relationship with the Lord. And here we are at the end of the day, at least the daytime hours, and thinking about our relationship with God and what He's done for us. And <clears throat> we'll be going home in a little while and getting ready for the week. And I hope what we've done here today, our time together, as we've spent time in prayer and focus on the sacrifice that Christ made for us, a little time in His Word, singing some encouraging songs. I hope as we get ready for the week here in a little while that those things will have an impact on our lives and we'll be able to go out and handle uh, whatever the world throws at us successfully. And this has provided a little, a little bit of help in that way. I've been talking a little bit about how the Old Testament is used in the New Testament, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's an important aspect in Bible study, in understanding the Bible and the instructions of the Bible, what God would have us to do. In uh, the book of 2 uh, Timothy, uh, we are told that uh, we are to handle aright the word of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, we're to be diligent to present yourself <clears throat> approved to God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed accurately handling the Word of Truth, handling correctly the Word of Truth. And so we can handle the Word of God accurately or handle it correctly, or we can mishandle it. And we want to handle it correctly and understand how to apply the Word of God to our lives and um, do our best to avoid making serious error. Some people make errors, they make mistakes, because they don't understand the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. You might remember that when we began looking at this subject, we saw that the Old Covenant and its law, the law of Moses, well, it's been done away in Christ. That we say sometimes taken out of the way and nailed to the cross. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 9 tells us that Christ took away the first covenant with its law that He might establish a new covenant. And so the Old Covenant, the law of Moses, has been taken away. So we're not under its law anymore. We're not under its rituals or practice its ceremonies or its practices. And so under the New Covenant, those things have been done away. Uh, however, the Old Testament is God's Word, and what it teaches is true. And so we've been looking at some of the passages taken from the Old Testament and used by New Testament writers. Now the three passages we've looked at all have to do with the coming of Christ. And so we looked at Isaiah chapter 53, an Old Testament passage that's fulfilled in Christ and used by New Testament writers to prove that Jesus is the Christ. We looked at uh, Psalm 110, same, you know, same idea. Here's an Old Testament passage that teaches the truth about Christ. And so the New Testament writers reach back into the Old Testament and apply it to Christ as king and as prophet in that case. We looked at the second psalm as well, a passage quoted numerous times in the New Testament by New Testament writers, again, to support their preaching, Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the one that fulfills Scripture. And so what we find in the Old Testament, we, kind of, we find that God has a plan He's been working that plan to redeem sinful mankind. He's given us 
sort of a foretaste of that or foreshadowing of that in the Old Testament. He's prophesied concerning the coming Christ. And so the New Testament writers, they uh, show how Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. But the Old Testament is used in other ways in the New Testament as well. And so, and so we want to take a look at that. Now, let's, I said a moment ago that some people make mistakes, sometimes rather serious mistakes, because they don't understand the difference between the Old Testament, the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament. And so, for example, some uh, keep the Sabbath day and insist, really, that the Sabbath day is really the, the day that people ought to worship. And they may claim allegiance to Christ and following Christ and so forth, but today the Sabbath day is the day of worship, even though in Colossians chapter 12 we're told that we are not to uh, let anyone act as our judge regarding food or drink or in respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day. The New Testament plainly teaches that we're not under the Sabbath law. Why, why not? Well, that was part of the law of Moses, and so that's been done away with. Nailed to the cross, as we would say. Taken away, and now there's a new system, a new law in Christ. And some of the same folks keep the dietary regulations of the Old Testament. Well, that, that's a mistake, isn't it? To impose on believers today the dietary regulations of the law of Moses. And so they won't eat pork or shellfish or things like that. Even though the New Testament says everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, is sanctified by means of the Word of God and, and prayer. And so everything is good for food. Everything that God gives is good for food if, you know, if we sanctify it with prayer. And so here's a, here's a mistake. Failing to see that the Old Testament the old law has been done away with, and now we live in a new covenant and, and a new law. And some of those laws are, are different. We're going to kind of transition to a, a different idea tonight, continuing our discussion of how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament, seeing that one way they use it is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, but they use it in other ways as well. And so... Let's turn to the book of Romans tonight, the book of Romans. And we've been told, or we read in the New Testament, that uh, the Word of God, uh, the, the Scriptures are inspired by God, and they're profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, furnished completely to every good work. And so all Scripture is inspired by God. That includes Old, Old Testament. And maybe even at that time, Paul has primarily in mind the Old Testament. It's inspired by God and is profitable for various things, for doctrine, for teaching, he says. And then correction and reproof and instruction in righteousness. And so we're going to see tonight how the New Testament writers will teach the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of Christ, but they will support that and establish the truth of that by reaching back into the Old Testament and uh, apply it to their teaching. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God, and again, at this particular time, he might have primarily in mind the Old Testament. But the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Word of God, all the Word of God, Old Testament, New Testament, but the Word of God is 
living and active. It's relevant. And so uh, we not, should not be surprised to find the New Testament writers using the Old Testament even extensively to establish the truth of what they taught. So we can just look at a specific example of that. Let's go to, again, the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, Paul addresses the two approaches to being right with God. And so just, we're going we're gonna to work that out. We're going to elaborate on that idea and show how Paul addresses or discusses two approaches to being right with God. Now, here's one approach. One approach maintains that we can be right with God. We can be just or justified by our performance of the demands of the law. Now, a person could be right with God if he performed the requirements of the law. Paul discusses the law in the book of Romans. I think he has primarily in mind the law of Moses. But what he says about keeping the law of Moses would apply to trying to be right with God based on any approach of law-keeping, a law-keeping approach to justification. Now, in Paul's mind, I have no doubt that the highest, you know, the highest level of law is the law of Moses. <laughs> can't get any higher than the law of Moses. But if a person can't be right by keeping the law of Moses, he can't be right with God by keeping any law. And so what he has to say about keeping the law applies to just that entire approach, I'm sure. And so hypothetically, and that's an important word to keep in mind when discussing this, hypothetically, theoretically, what would a person be required to do to be justified by the law? And so speaking in hypothetical terms, not, not realistic terms or practical terms, not what really happens, but theoretically, what would a person have to do to be justified by the law? Well, he would have to observe or practice or keep or obey the law in every respect all the time. So if he's going to be right with God, God says, okay, here's my law. If we're going to be right with God on the basis of that law, we have to keep that law, observe it, do it, obey it in every way all the time. Because if we don't keep the law even one time, well, then we can't be just on the basis of the keeping of the law. And so we must keep the law in every respect all the time in order to be right with God on the basis of the law or works of the law. Romans chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says, It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law are justified. If you're going to be justified by the law, you have to do it. Have to do the law all the time. Can't transgress the law in any way. That is, if the law says do this and we don't do it, we've sinned. And we can't be justified by law keeping anymore, you know, because we, we've broken the law. If the law says don't do this and we do it, we've transgressed the law. So God says, here's my law. Now you can be right with me if you keep it in every aspect, in every respect, all the time. But that's what would be required of us. Now Paul says, this man, the man who does this, he's saved by works of the law. Or sometimes he might say, he's saved by works, which is just a shortened form of saying works of the law. A man who's right with God on the basis of keeping the law is saved by works. 
Now, if someone were to do this, just, just think about this. If someone were to do this, he would not need God's grace, would he? He wouldn't need God's grace. Why would he need God's grace? He's kept the law perfectly. He would not need uh, the cross of Christ. Why would he need the cross of Christ? He's kept the law perfectly. He hasn't sinned in any way. Why would he need the cross? He wouldn't need forgiveness. He hasn't done anything to be forgiven of. If he keeps the law of God perfectly in every way all the time. And so he wouldn't need God's grace. He wouldn't need forgiveness. He wouldn't need the cross. All of those would be unnecessary. He would be righteous in and of himself by what he's done, by keeping all the requirements of the law. He would be righteous in and of himself. He would be what the book of Titus calls doing works of righteousness. So he would be right with God on that basis. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul says the one who works, remember that we said that's a shortened form or a brief way of referring to the one who is justified by the works of the law, by keeping the law. The one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. And so if he keeps the law all the time, every respect, does everything he's supposed to do, doesn't do anything he's not supposed to do, in word and deed and thought, God would owe him. He's earned his reward. It really even, I'm not sure that reward would be even the right word. <laughs> he's earned his wage. You know, he's earned the sal salvation is not the right word, you see, because he hasn't been lost. And so he's, he's earned that reward. You know what I'm trying to say there. Well, let me ask this question. How many people are right with God in that way? Here's the law. God said, here's my law. And if you keep the law, you'll be right with me. And so how many people have been, are, are right with God in that way? Zero. <laughs> That's why we said, hypothetically speaking, theoretically speaking, Zero people are right with God in this way. And, and Paul goes to some length, really great lengths, to show that in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, really on into chapter 3. All have sinned, he says in chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned. All have sinned. God has said, here's my law. If you keep my law, you'll be right with me. But nobody's done that. Everybody has sinned. And they fall short of the glory of God. And so no one is justified by keeping the works of the law. Or, say it in that shortened way, no one is justified by works. That is, by works of the law. So Romans 3 verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then Paul strings together a series of Old Testament quotations to support that point. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none that understandeth. There's none who seeks for God. They've all turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. And what Paul's talking about, there's none that does good in the sense that everyone has sinned. No one is absolutely good. All of us are kind of a mixture of good and evil. <laughs> and so there, there's none that has done altogether good. And so how many are justified on the basis of works of the law? How many justified on the basis of works? Zero. All have sinned. There's another approach uh, to being right with God. 
And this approach requires forgiveness. And so what, what God has done is He said, okay, I understand everyone has sinned, but I might forgive you of your sin, and through my forgiveness, you can be right. You can be justified. You can become a righteous person when I forgive you of your transgression. Now that's the only option that's available to the transgressor. That's it. There's only these two ways. One is keep the law perfectly. Well, that's out because all of us have sinned. There's only a one other way for us to be right with God, and that's, that's if God chooses to forgive us. Only if He forgives us of our sin, of our transgression, can we be right with Him. Now that poses a problem for God. How can God forgive our transgressions and maintain His own integrity? You see, God has said the penalty for sin is death. And so the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and several verses there, verse 4, verse 20, the soul that sins shall die. And so the penalty for sin is death. The, the wage of sin is death. And that really goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, when God put the man and the woman in the garden, gave them access to every tree for food, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And He says, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat from it, you'll, you'll, you'll die. So they're going to die spiritually. If they transgress God's law, so that's the law, isn't it? God said, don't eat of it. If He says, don't do this, and you do that, you've transgressed the law. The wages of sin is death. And so how can God say, well, okay, I'm going to forgive you of that and maintain His own integrity? He's already said the wages of sin is death. He can't just say, ah, oh, let's just forget it. Let's just forget that. Let's just do, have a do-over. He can't, he can't take His Word and His law so casually as that. He, if He said the wages of sin is death, well then the wages of sin is death. Alright? So He can't just willy-nilly say, oh, we're just going to forget that. People who do that really don't have any integrity in their Word. Can't trust their Word. Can't count on their Word. And so in order for God to justify the transgressor, maintain his own just character, something has to be done. And that something is the cross of Christ. Atonement for the sins of mankind was made by the sacrifice of Christ's life on the cross. Or to say it another way, atonement for our sins was made in Christ's death on the cross. And so remember, the wages of sin is death. Okay? Christ died for sin on the cross. And so we can kind of sum it up in this way. In the cross, the God-man, Christ. Remember, God is, uh, Christ is fully God. He's God with us. But He's also fully man. And so uh, on the cross, or in the cross, the God-man, Jesus, bore the sins of His fellow human beings. Our sins were laid upon Him. We've read that from Isaiah 53, even today. He bore our sins in His body, 1 Peter chapter 2. And so he bore the sins of his fellow human beings, satisfied the righteous requirements of God regarding the penalty for transgression. What was the penalty for transgression? Death. And so here's the God-man bearing the sins of the world as you and me, dying, paying the penalty for those sins, 
So God is able to maintain His own integrity. He said the wages of sin is death. Well, here's death paid for sin. And it also enables Him to forgive our transgressions. And so this approach doesn't rely on works of the law. It relies on God's forgiveness and His grace and the cross. Well, the next question then is how do we access the benefits of the cross? How do, how do you and I access the benefits of the cross? We can't turn the clock of time back to the first century and somehow have a container and get some of that blood and maybe wash it all over us or something like that. No, we, we can't do How do we access the benefit of the cross, the blood of Christ? How do we access forgiveness? How do we access God's grace? Well, we access it by faith. An obedient faith, but faith nonetheless. A faith that is confessed. If you look at Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And so we're simply in confession articulating what we believe. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus is Lord. That's what we're just saying out loud or confessing or articulating what we believe. It, it, we must have a, a faith that produces repentance. And so in Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about dying to sin. We have a faith in Christ that dies to everything that is contrary to the teaching of Christ. If Christ is Lord, if Christ is the Son of God, we need to obey Christ. And so if we, you know, if we uh, accept that, believe in that, trust in that, commit to that idea, Jesus is Lord, well then we turn away from or repent of everything contrary to the teaching of Christ. We're just putting our faith into action. And so we're dying to sin and we're living to God. And so Romans chapter 6, for example, in verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. So we've died to sin with Christ, and we will live with Him. And then it's a faith that is manifested in baptism. You know, what, what is it that we believe? We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We believe that He was buried that He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. Now what is baptism? Well, it's administered to a person who, have died, who has died to sin. He's buried. And He's raised to walk in a new life. Well, that's what we believe. And so we, baptism is simply a manifestation of what we believe. Dying to sin, being buried, raised to walk in a new life. And so, here's the second approach to being right with God. It's not on the basis of works on the law, of the law. It's on the basis of God's grace, because He's offered to forgive us of our transgressions. He sent Jesus into the world to atone for our sin. He becomes one of us. He becomes a human being. And at the same time, He is God. He's able to take the sins of all human beings on Himself and go to the cross and make a sacrifice that will satisfy the righteous requirements of God regarding our sin. How do we access that? By faith. Some might respond, well, that's a nice theory, but does Paul have any proof that God justifies by faith and not by works? 
Does God, does, does Paul offer any proof? Now, that, that sounds great, Brother Bob, <laughs> you know, justified by faith, by God's grace, by the blood of Christ, by the cross. Is there any proof for that? Well, you know what Paul does? He reaches back into the Old Testament to prove it. Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. We go to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. To prove his argument that we are saved by faith and not by works of the law. In fact, he quotes two scriptures in this passage. We're going to look at this one first. The first passage is taken from the life of Abraham. God promised Abraham a son, you remember? Going all the way, let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. Earlier than that, God promised to make of Abraham a great nation, promised that he would have a son. But that son never came. It was a long time the son never came. In Genesis 15, Abraham asked God, Well, who's going to be my heir? You made these promises to me. But I'm childless. Maybe Eliezer, my, my, my servant, the heir of my house, may, maybe he's the child of promise. Maybe he, and God says, no, no. Verse 4, but one who will come forth from your own body, he will be your heir. He took him outside and said, now look toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. And then the next verse, and he believed God. And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. What does he mean? He, he believed God and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. It simply means that God considered Abraham right with him, in good standing with him. God considered Abraham just based on his faith, based on Abraham's faith. And so Abraham believed God. And so Paul quotes from the Old Testament. How are we justified before God? How are we right before God? Well, Scripture says on the basis of faith, not on the basis of works. There's only those two approaches, you know, based on works of the law or by God's grace through faith. Well, Abraham was justified by faith. And that means he wasn't justified by works of the law like we've been talking about. In Romans chapter 4, Paul elaborates on Abraham's faith. And so, go over there to Romans chapter 4. We'll see what kind of faith Abraham had. Verse 18 says, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, uh, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief. He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. And then look at verse 23. Not only for his sake was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So what happened in what was said in the case of Abraham, this doesn't just apply to Abraham, it applies to us as well. That just as Abraham was justified by faith, so, so we're justified by faith. And so you see how Paul is using the Old Testament for doctrine. Remember, he says that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 
scriptures are inspired of God and profitable for doctrine, for teaching. We have an illustration of it right here. He's using it to support the doctrine that he teaches. The second passage in Romans chapter 4 is from the 32nd Psalm. And so if we keep reading in, in chapter 4, uh, verse, verse 5 says, To the one who does not work, remember that we said that's just a shortened way of saying, to the one who is not justified on the basis of works of the law. And so to the one who is not justified by works of the law, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. I want you to think about David's life. And he's quoting the 32nd Psalm there in verse 7. The 32nd Psalm. And David is just distraught over his sin. We don't know exactly what his sin was on this occasion, but David is just at his wit's end. And I'm groaning all day long. My body is wasting away. Your hand is heavy upon me. My vitality drained away. And so David is not right with God on the basis of works of the law. He's a sinner. He's a gross sinner in some way. And he's disturbed by it. His relationship with God is affected by it. And his conscience won't leave him alone. And then in verse 5 he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I didn't hide. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave me. Now was David right on the basis of works of the law? No. Mm -mm. He was right with God because God forgave him. He was right with God because of God's grace and God's forgiveness. And so no wonder David says in verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And so the Lord doesn't put iniquity down on his account because it's been forgiven. And so David is not right with God on the basis of his works. He's right with God because God has forgiven him. And how does God forgive? He forgives a person who, who believes, who, who puts his trust and is confident in God. So the person who's forgiven it is in a state of blessedness. How blessed is the man whose sins have been covered. He sinned, but God has covered his sin. He's atoned for his sin. He's forgiven his sin. And that's how David is right with God. And so again, Paul is reaching back into the Old Testament in order to support his teaching, in order to support his instruction. David actually, I mean, Paul actually quotes other Old Testament passages to show they were saved on the basis of faith. Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it a, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith unto faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well that's a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, the old covenant has been taken away and nailed to the cross. We're not under its laws anymore. We're not under its practices, its ceremonies, its rituals. Well, th those things don't, are not binding on us today. But the Old Testament does teach the truth. It is the Word of God, and it is still profitable. One of the things it's profitable for, and used by Paul and other New Testament writers, is to support the teaching of the gospel. And Paul uses it in that way. There are lots of people today 
who believe that they and their loved ones will be saved by their works. A lot of people believe that. A lot of people believe that. You might hear people say something like, he was such a good man or she was such a good woman. If anyone deserves to go to heaven, he does. Well, that's simply another way of saying, I think he'll be justified by his works. Well, that's, that's a mistake, isn't it? That's not how people are saved. People are saved because their sins are free. Not because they're good people, because none of us are absolutely good. None of us are good in that way. We're only good relative to other human beings, you know. All of us have sinned. And so we're not saved because we're good people. We're saved because we're forgiven people. We're forgiven by God's grace through our faith. A faith that obeys the terms of the gospel, but a faith nonetheless. In some passages in the book of, of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 2, for example, Paul says that God made these promises beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so he's drawing out those promises that God has made in the Scriptures and showing how the gospel, the teaching of the gospel can be supported by the Old Testament. All right, I want to look at one other passage tonight. Go to the book of James. James uses this very same passage, Genesis chapter, five, chapter 15 and verse 6, to show that we are justified by works and not by faith alone. And so let's, let's go over there. J James chapter 2, and we're going to look at how James uses Genesis 15, 6 to prove his point. You know, some people see an inconsistency, if not a, an outright contradiction, between Paul and James. Paul has been saying we're not saved by works. James says we are saved by works. But remember what we said about Paul's argument. When he, say, he says we're not saved by works, what he means is we're not saved by perfectly performing the requirements of the law, by doing the works of the law. So you've got to keep that in mind. James is not talking about that. James is talking about a person who simply believes, but, but doesn't act on that faith. That faith is not deep enough and strong enough to produce any action, to produce any work. So they're talking about different kinds of work. And so we're not saved by works of righteousness, which we've done ourselves, that's Paul. We are saved by faith that works, though. All right? And so they're talking about two different, two different kinds of works. James is answering the man who argues that faith alone will save. Even an, an inactive faith will save. A statement of faith without works to support it or prove that it exists in the person. And James in James chapter 2 emphasizes the insufficiency of faith alone in five statements. Let's look at those. Verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? What use is that? Well, the implication is, it's, no, it's of no use. That's a rhetorical question. Verse 17, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Verse 20, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Verse 24, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so James is answering the person who just, just says, I have faith, but boy, he doesn't show it with his life. You know, it doesn't produce any fruit. 
It doesn't produce any action, doesn't produce any work consistent with the faith that he claims to have. And, and James is saying, that's, that's not enough. That, that's, that's not a deep enough faith. Now, he illustrates it in several ways. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is, out, is without clothing, in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And so here's an illustration. You see somebody, and he doesn't have enough clothes to wear, and his clothes are tattered, and, and they're old and dirty, and just, I mean, just, he needs some help. And he doesn't have enough food to eat. And you say to him, I, I, I really think everything's going to be all right for you. I, I really think you're going to be okay. So, so just go on your way, and, I, and he doesn't do anything to help him? Well, is that, is that, does that accomplish anything? I, I, I really believe you're going to be okay, but he doesn't do anything. Well, you know, no, that, that doesn't accomplish anything. Well, that's like faith without works. All right, verse 18. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. You claim to have faith, but how do I know that you have faith unless you demonstrate it by acting on it? You say you have faith, but show me your faith. I'll show you my faith by what I do. And here's a good illustration of that point. In Genesis chapter 22, God is told, Abraham to offer his son, his only begotten son. And of course, he's willing to do that. And then in verse 12, God says, after Abraham is, you know, he's about to plunge the knife into his son and, and the Lord stops him. God says, now I know that you fear God. Now, now I know that you fear. Now I know you've got faith. How, how do I know? I could see it in action. I could see your faith in action. And so James is saying that, you know, just saying we have faith without any action, no, no, we need to produce the fruit of our faith. And then verse 19, you believe that God is one, that, hey, that's great, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Are the demons going to be saved? Well, they believe. Mark chapter 1, Jesus approaches a man who has an unclean spirit, and the unclean spirit says, I, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God, you know. He's even willing to confess that Jesus is the Holy One. But you see, his, his acknowledging that fact it works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says... Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And so here's our passage, Genesis 15 and verse 6, taken right out of the life of Abraham. Now he puts together another idea with that. Now God had told Abraham to offer his son Isaac, okay? Earlier, Abraham believed in God. You take those two passages together, Abraham believes God, and he demonstrates that faith by the offering of Isaac, and his faith is made complete. It's made perfect. It's a well-rounded faith. It's a complete faith. What makes it complete? The works of obedience combined with his trust in God. So Abraham believed in God, and that faith manifests itself in action. In this case, obedience to God's, to God's directive to, uh, to sacrifice his son. 
And so you can see that how James is putting those things together, that uh, his faith was made perfect. Hebrews chapter 11 makes an interesting comment, of course, on all of this. Hebrews 11 and uh, verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. When he received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, and Isaac, your descendants will be called. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back in a tithe. That's how deep and strong Abraham's faith in God was, that if he were to kill Isaac and sacrifice him, God could raise him back up again. So you see, Abraham's faith is, is whole, it's complete. It's the mental part, I trust in God, I believe in Him, and then that produce, produces the action or the work. It's a faith that works. There's another passage quoted in the book of James, James chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the hearted also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? It's interesting, if you go back to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2 verses 8 through 10, you can see a confession of Rahab. Rahab makes this confession of her faith. Listen to what she says. I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the, the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when our hearts heard it, they, they melted, and we had no courage, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth below. There's a confession of faith. We, we've heard about you. We've heard of what God has done for you. And there is no God except your God. And so she, she's got faith in God, doesn't she? And that faith, again, manifests itself in her actions when she hid the spies and sent them out another way. And so, will a dead faith save? What's a dead faith? A dead faith is a faith that doesn't, doesn't produce anything. It, it, it doesn't act. No, a dead faith won't save. A living faith will save. A faith that works. A faith that obeys God's commands. That's, that's the case of Abraham and Isaac. God commanded Abraham to offer Isaac, and so he did that. And so a faith that obeys will save. Just a couple of observations. James says, James chapter 2, verse 24, that we are not saved by faith alone. You know, it's hard for me to say we're saved by faith alone. When James, the New Testament writer, says we are not saved by faith alone. How can I say we are saved by faith alone when James says we're not saved by faith alone? No, it's not just faith. It's a, it's a faith that works. It's a faith that produces action. And so I know that's, that's said a lot. Very, very common. One of the hallmarks of the, the Reformation, you know, Salvation by faith alone. But, but James says we're not saved by faith alone. So it's hard for me to say that. I don't say that, in fact. And I think it would be hard for any of us to, to say that in light of what James, a New Testament writer, has to say. Now we're saved by faith and not by works of the law. I can say that. That's what Paul says. But just to make a simple, straightforward statement, we're saved by faith alone. No, I, I, I can't say that. Did you know that God saved people under the Old Testament in the same way He saves people today? 
Did you know that? God saved people in the Old Testament in the same way He saves people today. Well, how's that, Bob? He saved people who believed and put their faith into action. Like Abraham. Abraham believed and he put his faith into action by obeying God's commands. Now that's how he saves people today. Same way. People who believe in Christ and that faith produces action, obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ the Lord. Now some of the commands might be different, but but the principle is the same. He's always saved people in the same way. People are saved by faith, a faith that produces action, produces obedience. And so, we're saved today by faith, a faith that works. Both of those men, Paul and James, reach back into the Old Testament and, and quote the Old Testament to support their teaching of the gospel. What the Old Testament says is true. It's true that we're saved or justified by faith. Just like Abraham was, and just like David was, we will be today. And so there are details of the Old Testament. It's laws, it's practices, it's rituals, it's ceremonies, all of those things. They've, they've been set aside. But the truth is the truth. It comes from God. And the Old Testament teaches truth just like the New Testament teaches truth. In fact, the, Old Test, the New Testament uses the Old Testament to establish the truth it teaches. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we, we are thankful today, Father, for the opportunity to come together and to, to worship. We're thankful that you've given us your word, that it's been preserved for us, it's been translated into language that we can understand. Uh, we have access to it, it's plentiful in our, in our land, and we're, we're, we're thankful that we have access to your word, that we can read it and we can understand what you would have us to know. Our Father, we pray that we'll understand it correctly, that we'll handle it correctly and accurately. Help us, Father, uh, to see uh, the truth that's taught in your word so that we can avoid the errors that, uh, that, that, that are possible. Uh, Father, so we, we pray that you'll help us to understand your word so that we can make the appropriate and proper application of what, what it teaches. Uh, Father, help us to have a faith in you, in your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, help us to depend upon your grace and your forgiveness. Father, we pray that we won't rest on our own understanding or our own goodness. We recognize, Father, that we have sinned and we need your pardon. We're so thankful that you've made that available to us through Christ. And so, Father, we pray that each one of us here will put our faith in Christ, and we'll turn away from sin, we'll confess what we believe, we'll be united with Christ in, in, in dying to sin and being buried in baptism and raised to walk in a new life. Help us, Father, to have a faith that produces work, the kind of work that you're pleased with, that produces action, action for your cause, action that promotes your cause, that reflects the goodness of your cause, also action of obedience to your commands, as Abraham did. And so help us, Father, to have that kind of faith that works. That's the only way that we'll be saved. And so help us, Father, to develop that. Father, we pray that each one of us will reflect on the things that we've done here today and that they will have an impact on our lives. So as we go out into the world uh, tomorrow, 
that we'll be better prepared than we have been in the past to face the challenges that we'll face. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not a Christian and you want to become a